Well, good morning to each of you. It's good to see you this glorious Lord's Day that our God has been kind enough to give us and uh, to be together, to have this facility, to have the freedom that we have to worship is an immense blessing. If you closed your Bibles from Nahum 1, would you turn back to Nahum because we will be spending our substance of our time as we begin a short series in the Minor Prophets. We'll be considering two or three different minor prophets. Pastor Steve preached through Habakkuk over this this previous summer, and so uh, we believe the Old Testament is just as inspired as the New, and so it's good to cover both and to actually interpret the Old through the New. And so the title of today's message is The Divine Warrior Fights for His People. The Divine Warrior Fights for His People. Why Nahum of all books of the Bible? Why would I choose that, you might ask? It's probably one of the most unknown books in the Bible. I bet if we were to take a poll, there's some of you who would probably never even read the book of Nahum, or maybe it's been some time since you've read it. Uh, Nahum probably finds its place with Zephaniah and Obadiah, probably three of the most unknown books of the Bible. But I submit to you that there is great riches contained in these books, and in particular as we focus the next few weeks on Nahum, that should not be overlooked. For example, we learn so much about the very character of God. Not only that he is a God of wrath, a God of justice, that he will carry out vengeance upon his enemies, but along with that it demonstrates his covenant love towards his people, that he is the great defender of his people. God's judgment is an expression on the one hand of God's severity, but also goodness to his chosen people. And so this encourages our hearts as we realize that truth about God. Well, verse 1 states, The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, I want to just speak very briefly about Nahum because we know very little about Nahum. (laughs) And so we're we're not going to venture off and, and speculate. First of all, Elkosh, we don't know where that city is. It's, there's three that have been suggested by theologians. It's, it was probably a city up in Galilee somewhere, but it really, again, it doesn't matter. Nahum's name means comfort. And so it's very interesting that a book that has so much divine judgment in it that the author's name means comfort. And it's, of course, directed to <clears throat> Judah. He prophesied around 663 to 612 B.C., some 50 years. And and actually, this prophecy took place somewhere in that time. We can't pinpoint the exact day. He was a master with words. Some of the best Hebrew poetry and the, the vivid clarity comes forth, the imagery that is here comes forth in this letter. Now, some of you will remember that Jonah preached in Nineveh, right? Remember that? The, uh, the unwilling uh, prophet uh, goes. And so Jonah is about a hundred years earlier. But Nineveh had repented at that time, and God relented, and the city was spared. But they fell back into their pattern of wickedness and brutality and wickedness. And the Lord, at this point, says, enough. They are going to be judged once and for all. Some contrast between Jonah, about 760, and and Nahum, um, Jonah is a message of mercy. If you repent, you will be spared, (laughs) okay? Nahum is a message of judgment. There's no offer. It's it's too late. You have, in Jonah, he's the disobedient prophet. In Nahum, he's obedient. In Jonah, you have a people that are spared and a repenting people, and here you have a people that persist in their wickedness and their brutality, and they will be utterly destroyed, literally utterly destroyed, with no descendants after them. The Assyrians' armies armies were ruthless. They had already um, taken the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, uh, earlier in 722. And if you received an outline in your bulletin on the back, I posted a chart from the ESV Study Bible, which is helpful to see Assyria's terror against Israel and the history of that going back to the 9th century B.C. uh, to the 7th century there. 
And so you'll, you can actually look at this later and, and just consider that. Of course, we know that initially God raised up Assyria to go and, as it were, spank disobedient Israel and used Assyria as a rod to Israel. And you see that in the, the first 30 chapters or so of the book of Isaiah. By the way, Nahum writes, if, if, if um, you were to compare how he writes to another prophet, it would be Isaiah. So it's on that level. So why do we know so little about Nahum? Plain and simple. God doesn't want us to learn all about Nahum and his descendants and all of this. What does he want, to, what does he want us to remember and to retain? The message of this prophecy. So it's as though as we end verse 1, Nahum goes to the background in this message of judgment in Nineveh come to the foreground. And that's what we see happening here the burden or the oracle of Nineveh is what it says in verse 1. Now, as far as when he actually wrote, wrote, 612 was when Nineveh was actually destroyed, but we don't know when he actually wrote. It could have been as back, far back as 660, as I mentioned, but there is something that's referenced in chapter 3, and that is the fall of Thebes in Egypt. Chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, refer to that as an event that has already taken place. And that date was somewhere in, in the 640s. So it could have happened up to 30 years before this judgment came. Here's a letter of encouragement to Judah that judgment is coming, but by the way, it'll be in the next generation. Or it may be that he wrote in 613, 614, and it was very, very near. We just don't know. But we know that it is true, and we know that it is inspired. Now, to help set the context, brethren, and to understand God's unmitigated wrath towards this country, it would do well to just talk for a couple minutes about the brutality of the Assyrians. Nineveh has its roots all the way back in Genesis 10, the city of Nimrod. Both Babylon and Nineveh came forth from that and was raised up from that. Uh, Babylon would symbolize warfare against Almighty God, which we see even in Revelation 18 and throughout Revelation and many Old Testament books. But Nineveh symbolizes warfare against fellow man as they are so brutal and destructing and, and destroying man, and in particular Israel, but not just Israel. In 701, 701 BC, Sennacherib, you might remember from the end of 2 Kings, he came and he taunted Judah. And he says, do not believe, don't you not put your trust in the God who you claim to serve because we are going to take you. And I don't remember how many troops were outside, but we know the very next morning the angel of the Lord came and destroyed 185,000 of Assyrian troops so that Sennacherib said the next morning it's time to go home. But that didn't even set them back much. They doubled their army again. They just continued to grow in wickedness and in size, dominating huge spans of area. The Assyrian Empire, this was... Of course, a, a large area, but it was become one of the largest cities in history. The, the inner city itself, just the inner city, had uh, the walls that went around it was eight miles in circumference. They were 100 feet high, and you could drive three chariots around the top, racing three chariots around the top. So however thick that is, 50 feet or more, it was huge. It, it was like there's no way you could ever get into this city. There were some 1,200 towers stationed around those walls with 14 gates. Now, outside of that, there was another wall, which would, you might think of the inner city and then the suburbs, and the wall wasn't quite as big, but there was another wall, and it was just massive. Nineveh was so feared by all the kings and rulers in the area that they would send gifts unprompted just to try to appease the king of Nineveh at any certain time. Nineveh would humiliate rulers and kings, and after capturing them, they would let them live and put dog chains on them and have them live in dog kennels inside the city. The walls of Nineveh, that wall of which I spoke that was 100 feet high, when they would go in and, and just take cities and, and fillet victims, they would take the skin of victims and put it on the wall as though it was wallpaper. They would take piles of skulls and put them in front of the 14 gates as to a warning that you mess with Nineveh, your skull's going to join the pile. 
They were brutal. They were wicked. They had absolutely no regard for the God of heaven. James Montgomery Boyce says this, The Nineveh against which the prophet thunders divine denunciation has become a concentrated center of evil, the capital of crushing tyranny, the epitome of the cruelest torture. And as we will see, this largest, most powerful city in the world would not be fractured, it would not be weakened, it would be utterly obliterated and removed from history. And that's exactly what will take place. In fact, the details of this book, and especially next week in chapter 2, are so precise, it's as though an eyewitness is recording them, but it's so precise that some liberal scholars say, oh, Nahum wrote you know, after the destruction of Nineveh, and that's how he could get it. Now, to me, that just supports that it's inspired. This is something that is from God to be so precise as that. Some of you are sitting there thinking, well, that's a nice history lesson, but uh, how does that apply to me? This is the 21st century. Uh, Pastor, maybe you should look at the calendar. Well, it does apply to us, and it applies to us in many ways, and I'll be bringing out over the, the next week's This may seem irrelevant, but Nineveh was a capital city that was aggressive. It was was brutal. It was an aggressive superpower that was a threat to the people of God. And we see superpowers in the world today. This took place in the real world. We have that today in the real world. We have Christians being persecuted in certain countries where the people of God are crying out for justice under the brutality of, of tyranny. In India, Pakistan, Egypt, Indonesia, Iran, and the list goes on. Like Judah, we see unchecked wickedness all around us. That, that, that from our finite brains and our temporal minds, we, we think, God, do you not see? Where are you? Intervene into this wickedness, into this brutality. 53 million babies slaughtered in America alone over the last 43 years, and we cry out, God, do you not see? Yes, God is there, and yes, He sees. And there is nothing that will get past Him. Senseless shootings like last night in Baltimore. Young kid goes in and kills two people. God, do you not see that? Could you not have stopped that? You look at things like Rwanda in the past, Syria, the Nairobi mall, shootings, executions, which which literally there were limbs chopped off and all of this kind of stuff, and there was directed towards Christians. And we can cry out, God, do you not care? God, will you ever deal with this? People question if God is indifferent when all this is going on. Would Judah felt the same way? And so it's a great encouragement that God is on the throne. He sees whatever oppression is going on, and His covenant people... He will protect as a divine warrior and a divine protector. He is there. He is Yahweh. He is the one that has made covenant with His people and He will not utterly forsake them. He may discipline them in love as a parent does a child. He may spank them to get their attention, but ultimately He loves them as their covenant God. He is able to utterly destroy today's superpowers who abuse their power by sinning against humanity and in particular the people of God. But of course, Christ is the ultimate divine warrior. Amen? He is the ultimate warrior. Read the book of Revelation. We studied a few weeks back. Him is the slain lamb that is the victor. Who is the one that comes on the white horse? Who is the one that has the sword across the sash? And who is the one that is ready to fight for his people? And who is the one that all mankind will stand before in that day of judgment. But not only is Christ as the mighty warrior come to, to fight against flesh and blood, but He's fought against the devil Himself, putting an end to sin. And so He is to be glorified. We stand as God's covenant people and the new covenant under His victory. So let's consider chapter 1 under four points. God's person, God's power, God's provision, and God's pronouncement of judgment. And first of all, in verses 2 to 3a, God's person. 
Let me just say something at the outset. The first three points, verses 2 to 8, it summarize a hymn of great victory to God as the divine warrior who fights for his people. I'm taking three points just out of this. And so God's person, let me ask you, do you know and understand the character of God? When we find ourselves in trouble and in tribulation, where do we look? Do we look to God? This is exactly what Nahum does, is he reminds the people of God about the characteristics of God, the attributes of God, why you should look to Jehovah God. In fact, Yahweh is mentioned five times in verses 2 and 3 to emphasize of which I've already mentioned that he is in covenant with his people and he has not utterly forsaken them. Hudson Taylor, most of you know, he's the founder of China Inland Missions, believed that China needed a thousand new missionaries. And he prayed about it. He told all his friends about it. He tried to get, get, get people excited to come over. And, and his friends essentially said, that's impossible. You know what his answer was? When I look at a map of China, I cannot see how I could ask for less. And when I look at the promises of God, I do not see how I should ask for any less. He used to also say that the idea of having faith in God is the same as to hold to the faithfulness of God. That is, his very character, his very nature can be trusted in and clung to as a hope in the spreading of the gospel or any other, any other thing. See in verse 2, it begins here, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his enemies. First of all, he is jealous. You say, well, wait a minute. I, that's, is that allowable? Is that, you know, <laughs> I mean, a man being jealous of his wife when she's talking to another man or something like that, that can be sinful, right? But with God, it, the idea is, is that it is zealous. He is zealous for his people. He's zealous for his purposes in this world. He's zealous for his people. It's a picture of the mercy and goodness of a covenant God who commits himself to his people to not forsake them. And it's all woven with that steadfast love. J.I. Packer sums it up wonderfully in Knowing God. On page 190, he says, The Old Testament regards God's covenant as his marriage with Israel, demanding love and loyalty. Idol worship is therefore spiritual idolatry, provoking jealousy. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, the law of God in Exodus 20, and the, the second commandment of, of not having graven images, it says, And you shall not worship them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God! You shall worship me alone. Not those idols, not idols of wood or stone or anything else. I am a jealous God. Before the giving of the second, the retelling of the law, in Deuteronomy 5, earlier in Deuteronomy 4, it, he says, So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Warning after warning. He is jealous. He is, as it were, zealous for his people. And he wants them to give him their all in all. Notice he says, notice in your Bibles, the different translations, some have vengeance twice and avenging once, or avenging twice and vengeance once. They're all three the same Hebrew word. So we have a word being repeated three times in three phrases, the same exact word. I think there's, there's something going on here as far as emphasis that God wants us to see. He is an avenging God, a God of vengeance. And, and by the way, there's, there's a beautiful play on words here. Nahum, we already said, means what? Comfort. Well, the Hebrew word for this vengeance is nahum, <laughs> with a Q. It's very, very close. And so to the to the Hebrew readers that are reading this, they would see that play on words. Wait a minute, comfort and vengeance? Yes, that's right. Vengeance is 
uh, a retributive punishment for wrong done, and Nineveh was guilty of many terrible wrongs. Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is near. So vengeance is used in context in which calamity is coming very closely. And it's used three times here. Nineveh, you're about to expire, literally. And by the way, that Deuteronomy 32 passage is the very text that Jonathan Edwards used and sinners in the hands of an angry God. Their foot will slip in due time, and their calamity will come. The psalmist cries out, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. So God, the idea of God being a God of wrath, you think that's pretty popular if we went out to the Balboa Park and just started interviewing people? Absolutely not. Our society wants a God that is tolerant, and our culture glorifies tolerance. And so when you're intolerant about anything, that causes them to bristle. People prefer to think that God is a God of love and mushy sentimentalism rather than a God of wrath. God is not tolerant towards sins. He does not wink at sins. He is a God of wrath. But God is also a God of love and mercy to those that will repent of their sins and come to Him. Romans 2 and verse 5, but because of the stubbornness and un- because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Those of you who are unconverted, you young people, listen to me. You are actually, if you do not repent, you are storing up like in a bank account, a bank account that is growing so massive over time, all your sins, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath that you will answer for in your own person with no one there to defend you. But there is someone who came, someone who died, someone who took your sin upon himself on the cross but we must repent of our sins and embrace Christ by faith. He is the one that took all that wrath upon Himself on the cross. Then the very end of verse 2, and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The word here for reserves means He guards like a warden to a prison. He's guarding His wrath against His enemies. There are no enemies that will escape He's protecting it. He's guarding it. It's under lock and key, as it were. His wrath will be fully ventilated upon his enemies. Some question why Nahum, if you've read the book, why he doesn't address the sins of Judah here. Well, God does address the sins of Judah in many other places, right? But that's not the purpose of this book. This is directed towards Nineveh and to bring comfort to Judah in the process But we should remember that the words of warning that come from Nahum to Nineveh are also a warning for us. You see, the whole human race is guilty of sin due to our own personal wickedness, our own actions of sin. We're guilty. Paul writes in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside together, and they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, not even one. I love how he says that. You go, ooh, 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 wait, wait, my situation's different. You know, you can hear the objector kind of saying, no, not even one. John Calvin says, the gospel cannot be faithfully preached without summoning the whole world as guilty to the judgment seat of God. If you're here as a Christian today, you should be keenly aware of your sin. Your sin that has been paid for by Christ, and because of that, we detest our sin. We want to cut off our sin. We want to sin less and glorify God more. You should be very aware of your sin, and that should be the desire of your heart. But if you're outside of Christ, if you're not even aware of your sin, do you see how lost you are? Pray that the Lord would open your eyes. Search me, O God, 
and know my heart and see if there be any hurtful way in me, the psalmist cries in his prayer. You see, Nineveh had turned from the one true God, and so have we. Nineveh is, uh, spews uh, profanities and deceit from their lips, and so do we. They're swift to shed blood, and so is our society, so swift to shed blood. We are guilty, and we need God's intervention. As we're thinking about God's jealousy and his wrath and his vengeance, it's very important to distinguish that he is not given to human passions. Our confession states that in chapter 2 in regards to God and his character, the holy, of God and the Holy Trinity, that he is not given to passions such as we would be, where we would be angry at one minute and then happy the next and all of that. He, is, he would not be immutable if that were the case. And so, uh, moving on in verse 3. But God, notice the severity of the judgment of God is moderated by His patience. Do you see it at the beginning of verse 3? After all this avenging, venging, vengeance, jealous, wrathful, wrath twice, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great and power. We already read it if you were paying attention back in Second Peter chapter 3. I just want to read it again for us. The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And notice it's couched along with judgment, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away, etc., the Lord is patient. He is slow to anger. Nahum must have known the, the story of Jonah and how even there you use a picture of, of a patient God who is slow to anger, who, who, who allowed them to repent to give them another hundred plus years. In Romans 9, verse 22, Paul writing, but what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Sometimes God is pleased to demonstrate His patience even to His enemies who we will ultimately utterly destroy. But oh, for those of us in Christ, how He demonstrates His patience to us. That besetting sin that you keep trying to gain victory over, that you're confessing for the 50th time. For the hundredth time, He is patient with you. He does not come and say, that's enough, that is it. No, as our great high priest, He comes and He understands and He knows the temptation and He comes and He, he brings comfort and He brings strength by the Holy Spirit to overcome. He does not utterly forsake us. But notice what it says. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He is merciful to His people. To His chosen people. He is kind. He's, he's slow to anger. But He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. When Moses asked to, to see God, remember, put Him in the cleft of the rock and pass by in Exodus 34. Then the Lord passed by in front of Him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet, even in the context of all of that, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. There's a picture here of the absolute certainty of judgment for any who are outside of Christ. This is powerful language. No one can stop his hand. No, but my situation's different. I've done some good deeds that he's happy with. I've been a good person. Don't you understand? Away with such foolishness. You can never perform enough good deeds to be acceptable before God. He is holy, absolutely pure and righteous. You sinned enough this day to cast your soul into hell for all eternity. What folly 
to think that we can bring the suitcases of our good works to a holy God and open them up and say, look, God, I've been a good person. That's foolishness. Our only hope is to trust in the righteous works of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our only hope of salvation, brethren. Do not put confidence in yourself. Now, once we are saved, yes, we should do works that are meet with repentance. We should be producing fruit in our lives. But that is never a basis to get you into heaven and to spare you from judgment. Slow to anger and great and power. Very interesting contrast there. What you have here is an absolute full complete, full omnipotence that he can do anything. He is all-powerful. Or having considered something of God's person, uh, some of these attributes and characteristics of God, now let's consider God's power as manifested in 3b to verse 6. Our sovereign Lord is powerful over nature. Look at the text. In whirlwind and storm, in his way, in the clouds or the dust of his feet, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan, Carmel, and the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. No one can stop his powerful hand. He governs all his creation. He's in charge of all of it. And, and the first thing we see here is a picture of a, of a destructive storm coming. The whirlwind and the storm and the, the clouds or the dust of his feet is, is always prancing along. And we see this beautifully pictured in our Lord Jesus Christ when he's with his disciples on the sea, right? And the storm comes up and what happens? He rebukes the wind and says to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. God is sovereign over such events as this. He's sovereign over all of his creation. Even such devastating events as Katrina, the tsunami back in 2004, I believe, over by India and Thailand. Huge, powerful events he is in control of. Psalm 104, he lays the beams in his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks on the wings of the wind. He dries up seas and rivers run dry. And by the way, these three places that are mentioned here are places, places that are known for being very lush. He dries them up with his power. He dries up rivers, torrents of rivers. He dries up. He is able to completely dry up. And then the mountains quaking and the rocks shattering. It's a picture of being utterly inescapable from God's wrath against sin. No one is left unpunished who is guilty. In verse 6, it's sort of a climax of verses 2 to, to 6 here. It's a, his burning anger is like a consuming fire. Look at it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken up by him. Notice those three words there. Indignation, burning anger, wrath like a fire. This is a picture of terrible judgment. It's a picture of, of, of a people that were blinded and thought that they were right. And they're being shocked that you were wrong. This is what is reserved for the enemies of God. Isaiah 13, 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, the earth will be shaken from its place, and the fury of the Lord of hosts and the day of His burning anger. This whole idea of all this, the burning and the indignation and wrath being poured out like a fire, we, we, we have, there's fire, right? We, we know what it is for a house to burn down and to be consumed. We know what it is here in San Diego, Back 11, 10 years, just over 10 years ago, the Cedar Fire that just devastated a huge percentage of the county. I, I just think of it. It was in October. There was a dozen fires going on in the state. A spark happens way out past Ramona, and within before sunset, 
And by the next morning when the sun had risen, a hundred thousand acres had burned overnight. A hundred thousand acres, okay? Most fires, it takes a month before they build up that quick. That is the vicious Santa Ana winds. You might think of it as God's unmitigated anger, his burning anger, consuming everything in its path. It came some 30 miles from where it was ignited and already jumped the 15 by sunrise. It went on to burn nearly 300,000 acres and 2,800 buildings and 15 lost their lives. But we have pictures like that. that, that we should, when these events happen, we should think about it as God is, pictures himself like a consuming fire. That's exactly what that fire did. We have a member who lost their house in that fire even. Well, Jeremiah 10.10, At his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Psalm 18, The earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. So there you have, as we consider the doctrine of God, as we consider something of the attributes of God, a lot of wrath, a lot of vengeance, right? A lot of stuff we don't want any part of. But there's a flip side to this. And that brings us to our third point. We've seen God's person, God's power, but I want you to see, brethren, God's provision, His provision of encouragement and comfort given to God's people in the midst of utter wickedness. Look at verse 7. And really, it's the main thrust of the book. But the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Verse 8a, but with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight. Comfort, consolation are given to God's people. Divine judgment is coming not only because God is jealous and He is avenging, but because God does good to His people. He protects His people. He vindicates His people. John Calvin said, divine judgments are always founded on the goodness of God. Isn't that an amazing statement? Divine judgments are always founded on the goodness of God. Of course, God can do no other but good, but it's important to have that perception. Those who take refuge in Him. God is our refuge and strength. The hymn writer, top lady, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy ribbon side with flowed. Of course, this would be fulfilled perhaps many years later, maybe a few years later, but what a message of hope for Judah who had been suffering great persecution under Assyria. That God had not forsaken them Still, even though the northern kingdom had already been captured and hauled away into captivity, the ten tribes, the two southern tribes, maintain it wouldn't be until 586 when they would be hauled away. But it would not be by the Assyrians, it would be by the Babylonians because there would be no more Assyria after this event in 612. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are His. And everyone who claims or names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The Lord knows His people. Martin Luther said this about this particular verse. It is an outstanding statement overflowing with consolation. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Think of, in Luther's context, all the opposition that he was facing in the context of the Protestant Reformation. Standing those trials and so forth. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you will glorify me. Promises like that encourage our hearts as Christians. Christians know ultimately where do they find that refuge. It is in the cross of Calvary. It is under Calvary's tree where Christ has died. That's where we find our protection. That's where we find our refuge because it is there that He purchased our salvation. It is there that He died the righteous for the unrighteous. 
It is there where he stood in our place as a substitute. And that's why Jesus can say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. Isn't that wonderful? No matter what we're going through, no matter what difficulty, no matter what trial, the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And brethren, our days do have individual strife and trials and trouble, but we may be in for a whole lot more trouble, like physical persecution. And we need to take these kind of verses to the bank. You need to cling to these promises and hold them near and dear to your heart. Well, in verse 8, continues to show comfort and and provides uh, this in verse 8. The Lord is good and liberates from tyrannical rule. Verse 8 is an encouragement here because it says how the city will be destroyed. It says to what extent it will be destroyed. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The idea of consuming or pursuing them into darkness is into to where they exist no more. So think of this. You have the encouragement to God's people, a twofold encouragement. Take refuge in me. I am here as your warrior and I'm going to prove it by taking care of your enemies and wiping them out from the face of the earth. What encouragement to Judah who had been struggling for so long under oppression and the encouragement really from verse 8 to 15 to the end of the chapter is is sort of stated in several different ways stating the same thing that i will wipe them out they will be destroyed and so forth and so it's it's stated several ways to emphasize that encouragement a complete end in verse 8 is repeated in verse 9 what you devise against the lord he will make a complete end to it Verse 10, withering like stubble, consumed like a fire, like dry straw in a fire. Again, the city, when it was overthrown by the flood initially, was uh, burnt with fire so that when the city was discovered, they find, found large deposits of ash. And so the whole city was burned after it was overtaken. In verse 12, they will be cut off and they will pass away, will not be there anymore. In fact, some of this language in verse, well, we'll get to verse 14, but you know, there's, there's sometimes where cultures actually die and are removed. Think of the Nazi culture, right? Leading up through the invasion of Poland and through the 30s and the 40s and all of that. But when Germany was defeated, the Nazi culture was just about completely wiped out. You've got little upshoots here and there. But as far as that culture, and culture has been defined as this, a system of beliefs and values that bind a society together, giving it an identity. When Nahum here is convinced that the culture of Assyria and Nineveh will be completely wiped out. It's going to be removed. Look at verse 14. And the Lord has issued a command concerning you. And notice this threefold condemnation. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. Their descendants would be no more. To carry on a name was very, very important. And if you had no descendants, you couldn't carry on your name. What he's saying is the whole country as a whole would not be able to carry on. Secondly, their gods would be utterly destroyed. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. So not only will the people be utterly destroyed and forgotten about, all of their idols and their gods that they would exalt themselves would be utterly removed and destroyed as well. And then ultimately, to put an explanation mark on all this, for I prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. In other words, you are bar- you're buried. You're, you're, you're no more. You're vile, some of your versions say. You're contemptible. You're vile. You're wicked. Lamentations 3, the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to the abundance of his loving kindness. And in verse 15, you have a sort of a a celebratory um, phrase here, behold on the mountains of the feet of him who brings good news and who announces peace. Now, Isaiah was already written. It appears that he's quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 7, where that similar verse occurs. And Paul uses that 
in Romans 10, as does Isaiah, speaking of looking for towards Messiah. It could be used in that way here, or it could be used slightly differently where it's a declaration of judgment against Nineveh, which is, is in part good news to Judah themselves. It's a picture of the defeat of wickedness by the triumph of Christ, ultimately. And then, lastly, and very briefly, God's pronouncement of divine judgment. Just this cataclysmic flood in verse 8a here. Um, secular history tells us that um, how this had happened. By the way, the city was completely, you know, they, they find ruins of cities relatively quickly when they start to look for them. Guess when Nineveh was finally discovered? This is 6th century B.C. It was 1842 by a British archaeologist. So the whole city was literally removed from, I mean, existence for that long. And even then, they've only been able to go down and and get some, and that's where the large deposits of ash um, were found. But um, history tells us that those walls that were 100 feet around you know, three chariots wide and so forth, that the Medes and the Babylonians together put a siege on the city. They first dried up the rivers that ran in between the two walls, and then they unstopped it at the time when there was heavy rains, and the walls actually collapsed a huge section. The the river actually collapsed the walls, a huge section of the walls of that city, some 21 furlongs long. A huge gaping hole, in other words, so that the invading armies were able to go in there, completely devastate the city, and then light it on fire. So this was a course of over several months. The Lord frustrates the plans of his enemies, you see, three different times in verses 9 to 11, uh, devising evil. Um, in verse 10, tangled thorns, uh, they're senseless by their sin, like a stumbling drunkard. Uh, Isaiah 19 uses it in that sense. The Lord poured a spirit of dizziness so that they were like a drunkard. The idea is that they're completely not even thinking right about their sin. And verse 11 speaks of them plotting evil. So the Lord frustrates their plans as he did. A sovereign God reigns on the throne as we conclude just a couple words of comment. God's judgment, you see, is an expression of his severity, his justice, his severity, but his goodness to his people. And how is this message of judgment a comfort for the people of God today? Well, if you have an iPad and you look at Fox News or you have a TV that has cable or something and you you look at news, What do you see on there? Brutality, disregard for human life, wickedness, stuff that is just completely appalling to see, brutal persecution of Christians, which often is not on network news. You have to go elsewhere to find that. Roe versus Wade anniversary a few days back, and to reflect very soberly on the fact that 3,000 at least are being slaughtered in our country per day. Where is the cry? Where is the cry for the unborn? Abel's blood cried forth to God and God heard. Where is the cry from the people of God? We know that God is not asleep. We know that He's taking note of everything. We know that He will vindicate and make all things perfect. But we can be tempted to ask, God, are you there? Did you see that one? Did you see this? Did you hear about that? Of course we know He sees, but we long for the day when He will make all wrongs right and ultimately deliver His people. Remember the psalmist in Psalm 73, despairing over the prosperity of the wicked to where he says, surely in vain I have kept myself pure and washed my hands in innocence. And then later, of course, he says, until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. You know how I interpret that? Is that when we keep ourselves in the Word of God, around God's people, in the public worship, we can think through things properly and begin to understand world events and what's going on. We we know that there is a sovereign God behind these things. We don't have to be those that are 
that are you know, fretting um, about every little thing because we know that God is for us. This is why we need to know the very character of God, His attributes, understand His plan in this world, a plan of redemption for His people and protection for those who have been redeemed. And even in personal afflictions, we, we, we take it down on a zoomed-in scale from all of God's people to our individual lives, and we know that He is working for good. We know that He's seeking to conform us into the image of Christ. And as He sands some of those rough edges off, sometimes with a coarser sandpaper, it hurts more at different times. We joyfully submit to what He's doing, desiring to be conformed into the image of His dear Son. Some struggle, how can a God of love deal so harshly? I mean, to wipe out millions of people from existence because of sin, idolatry, worshiping false gods, shaking their fist at the true God of Israel. God is holy. He is just and righteous. Everything is perfectly balanced out, but He's a God of love and mercy. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just ask you, do you realize that you are an enemy of God? If you're, if you're not a Christian today, God is angry with you because of your sin, if you haven't repented of your sin. He sees you just like pagan, brutal Nineveh. And he may be being patient, as we saw in verse 3, but don't mistake his patience for anything else than a reserving up in the bank of wrath until you repent. God doesn't grade on a curve. That's the biggest lie out there. Well, I'm not as bad as my neighbor, so therefore I'm sure I'm okay. No, he doesn't grade on a curve. You are either look, looked on with favor or with wrath. But Jesus came to die the brutal death for us. He came and took all of God's wrath upon himself. I've been a believer for 26 years. That's a lot of sin. Just all my sin. Thinking of that being poured out on my Savior. Collectively in this room, the millions of sins that Christ died for. All of God's people throughout time. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity, took upon Himself. That's why there was such darkness for three hours. That's why there was such cries from the cross. That's why he had that cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all that sin was being poured out upon him. You say, I don't know if I'm elect. Repent of your sins and run to Christ. You'll know that you're elect. Keep putting it off. You may not be elect. Today is the day of salvation. Flee to Christ. If you're outside of Christ, I beg you, let us pray. Lord, we thank You for the place of divine protection, a place of joy with You, and not only in this life, but the life to come. And I pray that any that are here, that are ridden by their guilt, enslaved by their sin, resisting, repenting, Lord, that You would work in their heart. Lord, that You would regenerate them, that You would make them alive by the power of Your Spirit. Lord, for us, help us to glory and all of your attributes we thank you for your love and your mercy we thank you for your long suffering towards us who deserve to be obliterated just like Nineveh Lord we thank you for that we thank you that you also are a God who will make all wrongs right and that your justice and your vengeance is part of your character and it is tempered with your love and mercy Lord we give you thanks for that we thank you for this little book, Lord, we pray that we would continue to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen.